0: Built to Sell
1: Radio with your host, John Warlow. Hey guys, this is John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder Score. If you haven't got your score yet, I'd encourage you to take 13 minutes and complete the questionnaire you'll find at valuebuilder.com. It'll give you your score on the eight key drivers of company value. You're going to learn some different things about what drives the value of your business. You'll be able to see how you performed on these eight unique factors. Go to valuebuilder.com. You know, when it comes time to sell your business, one of the key questions I think you need to answer is, are you selling a company or are you selling a product? You know, if you're selling a company, you're selling an ongoing profit stream and an acquirer is going to want to understand how much profit you're going to make in the future and how bulletproof those estimates are, how much recurring revenue you have and so forth. If you're selling a product... They're gonna wanna say, okay, how much of your product can we sell given our distribution, our context, et cetera? Or how much more of our product can we sell by bolting on your product? Those are different questions and lead to different answers, and I think that's, how Natalie Susie approached the sale of her company. She thought of her business not as an ongoing concern, but really as a product. And she was selling both her product and herself as its chief spokesperson when she went to sell her business, Bare Organic Mixers. Here's Natalie to tell you the rest of the story. Natalie Susie, welcome to Built to Sell Radio.
0: Hi, how are you?
1: I'm great, thanks. I'm great. So tell us a little bit about this company, Bayer Organic Mixer.
0: So Bear Organic Mixers is an all-natural, gluten-free, low-calorie cocktail mixer. And uh, the story behind it, loosely, is uh, briefly, is that I was an English teacher at San Diego State. And I was selling on the side a product called Italian Ice, which is a sorbet that is very popular on the East Coast. And I was an East Coast transplant. And I thought I could bring this fun product to the West Coast. And all of my friends loved it, but they would mix it with liquor, Low calorie cocktail mixers, and um, at the same time, I was sadly laid off in the California budget cuts. And I was drinking one of my Italian ice cocktails and uh, recognized that there was a segment, there was a, there was a place in the market for something like this—a low calorie, all natural, gluten free mixer. Um, at this time, there was nothing like it on the market, so I bottled it and I labeled it. Um, I originally called it SoCal Local. And then to make it more appealing on a national level, I changed the name to Bear Organic Mixers, which basically just means it's bare of all the junk. It's really clean, four ingredients, um, makes delicious cocktails. And
1: so when you started this business, were you planning to sell it or what was, did you have an end
0: game in mind? I did. And I, I was planning on selling it. The, the idea for me was I love teaching. I don't ever want to kind of be in a position where I'm, I'm not able to do it. Um, in the way that I want to. So I'm going to start this company, build something great. I'm going to sell it and I'll have the ability after that and the freedom to sort of teach any way that I want because I'll have made this money doing it. <laughs> that was that was basically my original goal. And I was really passionate about health and um, fitness. And so it felt like a good fit at that time in my life. So, and I always had the intention of selling it. Yes.
1: And so you built it up and just give us a sense of how, how, how big you were able to get the business before you ended up selling it.
0: So I built it up in Southern California. My goal was, um, to make it a a Southern California name in the bar and restaurant industry. And of course, with the intention of selling it and making it go national, I knew that I was limited, um, in funding I would never be able to take it national because you need a lot of capital to, uh, fulfill on huge purchase orders. And that's a problem that, you know, many of my entrepreneurial friends have too. People don't often assume that, uh, growing a company fast could be a bad thing, but, um, if you grow too fast and you don't have the capital to deal with the purchase orders, you can't really do much. So I knew I wanted to take it to Southern California. I knew I had enough money to do that in the bar and restaurant industry. And once I did that, um, you know, certain things came into play that was made it able for me to sell.
1: So you were selling in the early days to directly to, you know, bars and restaurants, you, you weren't selling to, you know, as a consumer package, good into, uh, you know, retail stores, at the time in the early days, did that change? Or were you always targeting restaurants and bars?
0: I was always targeting restaurants and bars because I knew that I could sell a lot of product without spending a ton of money on marketing. Um, so my goal again was to just get it out to a bunch of places to get it to be a name amongst the, you know, people on premise on premise is what it's called. When you're um, in restaurants and bars and then be able to take it to the shelf.
1: And so how did that sale look like? Was it you personally knocking on the door of the bar, talking to the owner, saying, hey, this is a a neat concept. Why don't you give it a shot?
0: Yeah, yes, that's exactly right. And in 2010, like I said, there was nothing like it on the market. And I was in a male-dominated restaurant bar industry. So I would go into bars and say, I have this great concept, it's really good. And then they would, in the very beginning stages, they would look at me and be like, nobody cares about calories and cocktails because men don't generally, I mean, they probably do now, but in 2010, nobody really cared about calories and cocktails. It wasn't even a thing. So um, the first time I made my... Bigot, not my, one of my biggest sales, um, was to a Mexican, Mexican restaurant. I went in there at 9 PM when nobody, but the managers were in there. I took a friend in there. I had the bottle on the, the bar and I pretended with my friend that I was finally showing him this product he had never seen before, but he was excited to see. And I kind of made a big fuss about it, which caused everybody to come over to me and ask me what it was. And they were kind of excited about the concept. And that's how I sold my first really big sale. It was, um, it was a fun night. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Very entrepreneurial. I like it. And so I, when, yeah. when people bought the stuff, was it were they buying caseloads? Is it powder form? Like just visualize for me. For what, what did you get when you got this Mexican order?
0: Yeah, so you would have to buy what was called a bag in the box. It was called a BIB, and a bag in the box is it looks just like soda, like the the way that a soda. If you know anything about the bar and restaurant in, industry, it's in a huge plastic bag that's stuck in a fi, like a a cardboard box, and they attach it to what's called like the bar gun, and then you're on the gun. Which is for me at that time in 2010, it was the goal to be on the gun at all the Mexican restaurants in San Diego because I knew that if they were using it for all of their margaritas, they were. were. We're going to go through a ton of product and all of their margaritas. We're going to taste consistently delicious and natural.
1: And how many restaurants did you get on the gun at before you sold the
0: company? Oh gosh, that's a good question. I was probably, let's see, it was probably like in the 300 range. It was quite a few.
1: So you had 300 restaurants uh, that were using your product. Mm -hmm. Um, What was the trigger that made you want to sell this company?
0: So there was two triggers here. Um, The first trigger, from a business perspective, I had a really huge company um, nationally that wanted to buy a ton of product, like millions of dollars worth of product every month, which was super exciting. But as I mentioned before, it was going to be very difficult for me to to fulfill a purchase order like that. So the first, the first trigger event was I had a big company that really wanted to buy a lot of product, which was very exciting. And it was a, it was a deal that I'd been working on for a long time. Um, At this same time, um, personally, I went through a really um, terrible breakup with a, with my boyfriend of four years. And so what that caught, those two things happening at the same time really caused me to reevaluate like what I wanted my life to look like from a professional and a personal perspective and how much I could really do with this company in a big way. Um, And so I understood my limitations at that point.
1: Talk about the, the personal breakup a bit, because, you know, a lot of people I think would have had the opposite reaction, meaning, well, screw you, you know, I don't, you know, need you as a boyfriend or a girlfriend or whatever. I'm going to go make it, you know, a huge success of this company and kind of prove you wrong. But that that wasn't, that wasn't your reaction.
0: That's a good question. I mean, I, I was, um, I guess I got to to really clear with, because I really respected the person. It wasn't this awful, crazy breakup. It was really just like, look, you're never present and you're never around. And I know that you want to really care, but it just feels like you don't. And that doesn't feel good. And that's a problem for me. And so it kind of just came to a head like that. And I, I asked a lot of people that were really close in my life, you know, what kind of person I was showing up as. This sounds like really woo-woo personal development stuff right now. But basically I just, I wanted to get back to my, um, I wanted to get back to basics and I wanted to be the person that I was. And, and when, before I had started a business and that I could be really present with the people I cared about. And I was starting to recognize that this was infiltrating my entire life. And while I loved it and I was really proud of the product, I was, um, not balanced in any way. I was just 24 seven, you know, my business. So I wanted to try and find some balance. And I knew that in selling the company, if I sold it to the right people, um, I would likely still be able to see it grow and be proud of it. Um, and not limited by it, you know? So.
1: So talk to us about the next step. You you have this breakup, uh, and this, this PO from this massive company, these two events that simultaneously cause you to want to sell, uh, what was your next step? Did you hire a business broker? Did you did you knock on the doors of a lot of companies to sell? Like what was what was your next step?
0: You know, that's that's a great question. I did not hire anybody. I was really blessed to have um three really integral me- uh, mentors in the whole process. so I had a mentor that helped me build the com- that helped me through the whole process of the four years of building the company. and then I had a mentor that helped me find the buyer and I had another mentor that helped me close the deal. Um, so basically I went to to one of my mentors who has the most connections in the food and beverage industry at this time and I just said, this is where I'm at. this is what I need. Um, please help me and he did and he helped helped me find a buyer. Um, at the same time I went, you know, I started the process of, of talk going down the road with this one particular buyer. And, um, I also w- sort of, you know, when it rains, it pours. I had three other, uh, three total buyers that were interested all kind of at the same time, um, during this process.
1: How did you compensate mentor number two, the, the one who helped you find potential buyers?
0: You know, I, I offered to compensate a piece of the deal and uh, he was a mentor of mine for many, many years and we had a really great relationship and he's very successful and um, didn't, I didn't compensate him much to my dismay. I really wanted to, and he just wouldn't take it. (laughs) That's the, not the norm though. I would imagine probably.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. It sounds very philanthropic of him indeed or her. I'm not sure which gender they were, but that's great. That's, that's a, uh, that's a great win for you. So, you had these three different companies that were interested. Um, walk through the next steps. Did you get three unique offers? Did you get one offer? Like, how, what was the next step in the process?
0: You know, I like to say, when I really look back on it, and I was like a monogamous negotiator, I was down the path too far with the first person. Um, so, I stuck with that person. And this, company was like my baby. I mean, I birthed it, I created it, I built it, I watched it grow. I All those metaphors that you could use for a mother and a child is how I felt about this product. So it was really important for me to find the buyer that in my gut felt like the right fit for the product. Um, so while the other two buyers, I might've gotten more in the negotiation, I might've had more freedom. Um, I, I stuck with the first one because I was um, loyal to them. And I thought that they were the best person for my brand. They were, I was like sending my kid off to college and I felt like they were the best place to go.
1: And this was the ultimate buyer, ultimate superfoods, right?
0: Yeah. It was a leading natural foods company, um, in California and their name is ultimate superfoods and the CEO of the company and I, um, just hit it off and we got along really well. And I just felt like he was a good fit for the brand and he would take care of the product.
1: Interesting. I mean, that's certainly you know the the mercenary entrepreneur in me is saying, "Wow, you left so much money on the table." But for for you, it wasn't exclusively. It sounds like about money.
0: It wasn't. It really wasn't. And I look back on it now, and I think, "Gosh, I should have I should have pinned those three against each other." Um, you know, all of the shoulda, woulda, coulda's of the negotiation deal that I could have done to make it even easier for me now, post negotiation. Um, but at that time it was, you know, three almost three years ago, I guess two and a half years ago. And I was still green and negotiating. I was, and I'm loyal to a fault, which is something I've learned in businesses is a negative thing to do, um, in some ways. But in this case it worked out and I, and I felt good about it. So it was okay.
1: So tell us about Ultimate Superfoods, the, the deal itself, like the mechanics I'm interested in. So did, did they come to the table with an offer? Did, did they ask you what price you were hoping to get and, and then respond to that? Like who made the first move, I guess is my question.
0: <laughs> Yeah, that's a good question. So, so we both met. And again, this was, this is a family run company. So things were done a little bit more informally um, than maybe some negotiations are. It wasn't, it wasn't corporate in any way, which led to sort of a little, it was easier in some ways and harder in others. So, um they came to me uh, through my mentor. My mentor found a buyer for me. They were really interested in the product. They had never bought a product uh, that was done and finished already. So they were they were a company um, that primarily sold bulk natural food ingredients. Um, So it was really uh, new for them to go and look at a finished product with a person behind it and a brand. It was exciting for them. It was new. It was scary. They're a family-run company. So that has a whole bunch of elements attached to it that make it very emotional when doing new things inside a building. Um, so the deal took a very long time to close. It took like just under five months, which was great. I mean, it's kind of crazy. It was a really long close. Natalie five months from the first meeting to the yes. check in your hand. Yes. Yes. Um, And it was interesting because the check in my hand, the same day that I, that I closed the deal, I was actually at the Padres stadium trying to close the deal with them too. So it was like a lot of crazy things happening at once for the company that were all very exciting.
1: Just, Um, just to be, just to be clear, you were trying to close a sale of bare organic mixers to the Padres food and beverage organization. Is that what you meant by that? Yes. Got it. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you're still full, full bore. You're still trying to make the business (laughs) successful. So, so again, um, walk me through who made the first move. So you get together.
0: We get together. Uh, Go yeah. ahead. Sorry. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So did do, do, do they say, look, we want to offer you X, or did you say, look, I want Y? Who made the first move?
0: Yeah. So they made the first move. I, and yeah, they made the first move in the process and then I countered. And I'll also say in this, um, in this whole negotiation, I didn't actually do much of the negotiation. I, I did a lot of, okay, I'm going to meet and greet. And I went to a couple of different events that the company was throwing so that I could get to know more people in the building. It was always known that if they bought the brand, I was coming with it at least for a year. They wanted me to be the face of the brand. So it was very clear that they weren't just buying the brand. They were bringing me along. So I did a lot of like meet and greets face to face, getting to know the company, but my, me- excuse me, my mentor. Um, so I had one mentor. Max, who uh, opened the deal for me, who found the buyer. And I had another mentor, Cheryl, who actually closed and negotiated the deal for me. Um, and again, because this was an emotional process for me. This was four years of my life. I went through a lot of stuff to get to this deal table, to get to this point. And it was better for me to not actually negotiate the whole deal. Um, so they, they made the first move to answer your question. I countered through who some people would say like is their lawyer but it was my mentor in this case and we went back and forth like three or four different times and then we finally came to agreements on you know what my sat be what i would get on the back end and what the actual company would sell for so those were the three points it was salary um you know back end and then the actual sale of the company
1: when you say back end what are you referring to an earnout or, or something on the
0: yeah, so percentage risk. percentage of profits. Like I would get a you know percent of percent of the profits for every deal that I closed.
1: Got it, got it. And then there's some cash up front as
0: well. Exactly.
1: Yep. Did you have a number in mind? I mean, we talk about the emotional you know impact of selling your company. Uh, was there was there a a number that y- you you had in mind going into the negotiation that you thought? was fair compensation for four years of blood, sweat, and tears?
0: Yeah, I did have a number. Um, I did have a number, and I would say that I got close to that. But in this process, you always think – your company, especially when you've been through, like I went through so much with my, with my brand because, you know, I had zero knowledge of the industry. I had zero connections and I had, you know, I used my own savings to kind of create this, this dream that I had of building a brand and a company. So it was, again, it was really emotional for me. So it's hard to put a price tag on what that equals or what that accounts to and kind of get somebody on board with really understanding that they are looking at it from another, you know, from their perspective, they're going, okay, this, you and this product together are very, um, uh, they have a lot of potential. And so we're looking at the potential here and it's different than, you know, you're coming at it from very different perspectives, at least in my case.
1: Yeah, and and how did you? I don't need to know what the number was, but how did you think about the number? Um, I mean, was it was there a trophy that you wanted to buy, or was it did you put some sort of economic, you know, worth on your time, or how did you figure out in your own mind what you thought the business was worth to you to get rid of?
0: For me, um, that's a great question. For me, I thought about well, what what would I make normally? as a teacher? What would I make as a teacher every year? And how much did I lose in not being a teacher by being an entrepreneur? Because basically when you're an entrepreneur and you're running a company on your own, everything that you make, you put back in to the business. And for me, the company was growing. So I had to put all the money right back into the business in order to to cover my purchase orders, which was a good problem to have. Um, but it made it so that I wasn't making a ton of money on, on, as a salary, you know, that I was giving to myself. So I was thinking about from a perspective of what did I, you know, what was the opportunity cost of not being like having a real job for four years and what is the potential, you know, what are we making right now in the restaurants that we're in? And if we have X amount of dollars put into it, how much is the potential after that, what what will it look like if I can have X amount of dollars to buy this much inventory, and then I can get us into six hundred restaurants? Um, and we've kind of found some common ground in between that and what they thought it was worth.
1: Going back to the emotions of the the original starting of the company, uh, you mentioned that you'd been laid off. Was there any part of you uh, when you got through four years in, and you're you're, you're into these negotiations that? that, that you were motivated to prove them wrong, that they made the wrong choice of who to lay off at the school?
0: (laughs) No, you know, it's a good question. I didn't really ever feel that way because I'm, it was, it was against my control. Everybody was getting laid off at this time. It was the budget cuts. Um, and it was, the motivation was never like a, I don't want to say it's not revenge. I don't think you're suggesting that, but just there was nothing negative about it. It was just like, I've always kind of been curious about what it looks like to start a business, and it feels like the perfect time to engage in it. I'm at the right age where I can take a couple of risks and I can make a few mistakes. I know I'll get back to teaching. And my idea was this will be another adventure that I'll learn so much in that by the time it's over, I'll be able able to use this, what I call a, you know, like a master's degree, a a life degree in entrepreneurialism and an actual master's degree in education and put the two together so I can teach anything any way that I want to. Um, but teaching is, is, you know, I'm a, I call myself like a teacher by heart. So now I have this ability to teach any content that I learn and I can actually make a business out of it. So that's how I was looking at it. And that's how, that's what I kind of held on to.
1: In retrospect, and you worked for uh, Ultimate for, I guess, a year after the sale. Was that right? Yes. Mm -hmm. In retrospect, do, do you think they were buying a company or a product?
0: They were buying a product along with the face of the brand. That's what they saw me as.
1: And how did you get your head around the idea of selling your company? So to the point where you didn't necessarily have equity in it anymore, but also you know, agreeing to be the front person, be the the spokesperson, the head salesperson for this company. How did you kind of rationalize that or get your head around that?
0: It's, it's a good question. I mean, I feel like that was the thing I was always meant to do. I created this product and I wanted to show it off and I loved talking about it and I loved to show it off. And I loved seeing the buyers and the, you know, the, the customers trying it and liking it and all of that. So it felt like a natural fit for me. It was difficult um, on two fronts when I, you know, closed the deal with them and I sold hundred percent of the company. Of course I had to deal with the fact of like, now I have no control over it and it's totally up to them whether they let me be involved at all. Basically, you know, I, I had a contract with them and all of that, but once you sell the company, um, the, it's their company and it, they can do what they want with it. Um, so part of it was, I just, I had to give up control and be comfortable with that, which it took about two or three months to get to that point. I sold it. And then I felt like I was doing what I was meant to do with the brand, which was being being the face of the brand, being the head salesperson and being able to talk about it. I hated dealing with logistics. I hated dealing with distributors. I didn't like doing any of that back end stuff. So it gave me the opportunity to just never have to deal with that again, because I had people that were managing all of it, invoicing and all that stuff that I hated doing. Um. And then the other piece of it was you have to wrap your head around now you're someone's employee. And so if I had to do it again, I would change the negotiation and just, just like from the start be a consultant because I am the worst employee ever. <laughs> like I hate that title for me personally. It just does not work well for me.
1: So you would have structured your agreement as an independent consultant, independent advisor, and it and, and sounds like continued to take a piece of the back end sales as part of your compensation
0: Yeah, absolutely. A million percent. I mean, I walked into the office the first time on a meet and greet and I saw somebody, um, checking in, you know, like logging in or whatever on a time card. And I just said, you know, I will never do that. And I will never be here before nine. Like that's just not the way I roll. Um, and (laughs) if you want to call me an employee, that's great, but it's not going to look like any employee you've had before. So just be okay with that. And it was difficult for, for both sides actually.
1: Was it, what else made that year difficult?
0: Um, I had people running the brand that um, some of them I really believed in and some of them I really thought they knew what they were doing. And there were others that had their hands on my brand. That's how I saw it on my baby doing things that didn't make sense to me. So I was frustrated a few times um, by that. And that's something you have to really come to terms with if you're going to sell 100% of your company, because that will happen if you're still involved. You'll you be frustrated by the powers that be that make decisions you would have never made for the brand.
1: So when you sat down and, and you were in the final throes of negotiation, you were looking at a salary, a, a back end, uh, you know, piece of sales for a year uh, plus cash up front for your company. Mm-hmm. Had did you? It, what proportion of the overall you know sale proceeds were were you anticipating being the the kind of variable piece, the 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 backend percentage. So if if the whole pie is 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 X, what proportion of X were you thinking would come on the on the kind of back end? This is before you you actually sign the deal.
0: Oh, um. So what kind of money would I get for deals that I closed? Basically, you're asking me what kind of percentage.
1: Yeah, relative to how much, I guess what, where I'm going with this is I think people listening, uh, it would help them to know how much uh, cash up front they should be negotiating for. So if they think their business is worth, I don't know, just pull a number of hat, a million dollars, you know, and, and somebody is saying, look, I'm going to give you $400,000 up front and the opportunity to earn $600,000 if all goes well. So they're getting kind of 40% of their cash up front and another 60% at risk. In your case, again, I don't need to know the number, but I'd love to know the proportions, what you thought the, you know, the, the, the base, you know, the, the cash front was going to be as a proportion of the overall proceeds you were going to, you were going to glean. I
0: didn't, I, you know, I don't know. I didn't think of it that way. I thought of it like, this is how much I'm worth as a person that's working for you. And if I make these kinds of deals, this is what I want to see on the back end, um, and it was like, you know, I looked at myself as a glorified sales rep at that point with the amount of, you know, percentage that I was getting per sale. Um, so I would probably be getting, you know, 10% just to throw a number out there versus like some of their salespeople were getting three or, you know, does that make sense?
1: It does. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, and so I wanted,
0: yeah, I mean, I basically, I think to answer your question, if you think that your company you know, fight for what you think your company is worth. Um, give and take a little bit, but go to the table and be the person that that can say no. That's the thing I learned in the negotiation. Like, Be the person that can say no, even if you don't think you can. Like, Just embody that, that you don't need this deal. You don't need this negotiation. It changes your mindset quite a bit when you're negotiating. <laughs>
1: And is that a lesson learned? I mean, it sounds like you—you you were, in your own words, a monogamous negotiator. You had this one relationship. You were loyal to a fault. I mean, did you ever push back hard and 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 threaten to walk away? Or, I did. Are you thinking that you know retro retrospectively, you wish you had been a little harder?
0: Retrospectively, I wish I would have been a little harder as a woman in the in this industry. Uh, you know, I'm dealing with men all the time in the beverage industry, and I was a nice business person. And I was a loyal, kind business person to this one company because I felt they were the best place for my product. Um, and looking back on it now, yes, I would have probably used the fact that I had three buyers. I would have sort of pinned them against each other and I would have been a little tougher. Um, and that's just a lesson learned. And it it doesn't mean that you need to be, not a nice person or a hard ass or whatever you want to say, but you just, you need to know what your worth is and what the value of your company is and all the stuff that you bring to the table and be really clear on it and be willing to walk away if, if they're not clear on it.
1: So same question now, but I'd love to look at it, it, having the year of you selling for Ultimate now kind of behind you, as you look back on it, um, retroactively, what, what, proportion of your overall sort of compensation from the sale of your company came from the, uh, you know, the initial cash upfront versus the, the variable piece. And again, the reason I'm asking is I, I think people would be in some cases surprised, at least it might be helpful to know, uh, you know, what proportion of their deal they should be asking for upfront versus kind of variable or so-called at risk.
0: Well, I think that too depends on how much potential your company has for growth. You know, if you know, like I did, that if I had a large amount of capital thrown into the company and that I could bust my rear and sell the way I really wanted to sell and pick up the national deals that I really wanted to pick up, it is more important for you to um, focus on the back end stuff, to focus on getting what you want on that end. And, and you should know, based company and how much potential you think it has, what that is going to look like if you have the cash infusion that you need. You know, again, my my situation might be different from others, but I couldn't grow the company because I didn't have enough capital. I couldn't grow the company to the degree I wanted it to. I couldn't fulfill that huge deal that was on the table because there just wasn't enough capital to buy all the inventory that you needed to purchase to fulfill those, those big orders. So I knew I needed somebody bigger and I knew that as a result, I would get more sales and and that would be where the money is. So that's where I focused.
1: And then why did you leave ultimate superfoods after, after the year or so that you promised to stay?
0: You know, it was kind of a, um, the most, I I came to terms with the fact that I came to do what I wanted to do. I, I was laid off. I started a company. I wanted to know what it felt like to run a business. I built it against a lot of odds. The beverage industry is incredibly competitive. It's really hard to play in. It's very expensive to play in it. Um, by all accounts, I probably shouldn't have lasted as long as I did, but I was just fierce about the brand. And I had I had done everything I wanted to do. I could wrap it up in a bow. I felt good about it. And um, I was really ready to get back to teaching. And I was ready to get back to start creating service-related businesses that engaged sort of my teaching aspect I like to be a bridge of knowledge to people that are looking for it. So as a result, I've started, you know, consulting and helping people, new and aspiring entrepreneurs build their brand. And um, I've, I've also started a, a whole different service related company uh, based on dating coaching, which I know is completely different and totally in a different category. But I've just learned how well my teaching skills go now with what I've learned as an entrepreneur. And I wanted to get back to that.
1: Wow, there's so, that's a whole other episode. We'll have to get into. I know.
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> I should have warned you about that before. But that's that's what I'm doing now. I'm p- pulling those two things together: teaching and entrepreneurialism to create service-related businesses, basically.
1: And and service based It sounds like you you were stung by the the, co- the You know the, the the inability to fulfill large purchase orders and the and the having hard costs associated with your business so that that really has left an indelible mark on you.
0: Yeah, you know, I'm I guess I've probably yeah, I've said that a couple of times. It's it was painful. It was painful to look at companies that you had been wanting to service forever with your product and then you're like oh, I just, I don't have the money to fulfill the order on my own. And I say this and I point this out because I I feel like a lot of companies, probably a lot of new entrepreneurs have this in the, specifically in the food and beverage industry, or at least it's the thing that I hear entrepreneurs talk about all the time. So it was painful for me.
1: (laughs) I mean, did you, did you consider other ways to finance the sale? Did you consider, for example, uh, taking a PO to a bank and asking a, a bank to finance it?
0: You know, I did, but the thing with the part- the one particular uh, company that I was going after would not do that. There was just, there was no way they didn't. I had down the path with them for many months. I talked to all of the people I needed to talk to. They were really excited about the brand, but they are such a big company with so many clients that depend on them that if for some reason you weren't stable and couldn't get them that order every month, they just couldn't take the risk. So it had to be there before they would sign the PO.
1: And, and therein lies the the challenge. Interesting. And then to go back to the Ultimate Superfoods company and their decision to buy your product, and and it sounds like you are clear that it was them buying a product and a spokesperson as opposed to buying a company. Did they ever push back with you, Natalie, and say, yeah, maybe not, Natalie. Maybe we're just going to compete with you and take your four ingredients and make our own version of what you you sell. Did, did they ever threaten that or did you ever get the sense that that was part of their negotiation stance?
0: No, that that's a great question. Um, no, they never did that to me at all. And there's a lot of people that will say, you know, don't talk about too much of your new idea or your new product because someone will steal it and, you know, all that stuff. And for a company like them, they could have absolutely done that. They certainly had enough capital to, to, to do what they needed to do to create a brand and, and compete with me. But to create a brand, the Bear Mixers brand, the name behind it, um, the, me as the spokesperson behind it, it was, like, it was valuable and it was unique. And that's the thing everybody loved about it. Everybody that wanted to buy it, everybody that was interested in the company, they always loved how I had created that actual brand. And so they felt they, they could have done that easily. It was only four ingredients, but the brand wouldn't have been there and the, the draw wouldn't have been there.
1: Hmm. So where do people get in touch with you now?
0: They can go to my website, nataliesuzie.com has everything I'm doing. And um, my other site is called The Other Sex D- Dating. So that's, that's actually what I'm working on every day right now. Um, and that's a uh, personal development and date coaching. It's really cool new product and um, project I'm working on. So
1: Natalie, Susie, thanks for joining us.
0: Have a great day, guys. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warrillow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog.